Welcome friends, hi, it's Sunday again. That seems to happen every week and I am so excited that you are here and that we are here together to talk about faith. We have lots to discuss today, so I wanna dive right in. But first, I just wanna say a huge, huge thank you to Jason Sowell who so graciously agreed to bring us the message last week. And I personally enjoyed it very much, but also I was just thrilled to have him share with all of you. So one of the things that is important to me is that you sometimes hear voices that are other than mine, not me talking, because I don't think that I have a monopoly on the right biblical interpretation or the right way that should messages should be given. So I think it's really valuable to, that you hear other voices and other perspectives. And I'm just so grateful to you, Jason, for sharing with us and also really grateful for all of you for being here and for coming back again. Now. I also just want to say quickly a word about reopening in-person services for Different Church. We are absolutely dying to hear, to see you in person again, but we are doing everything we can to ensure the safety of everyone. And right now, even though we are technically allowed to reopen um, at a reduced capacity, I think it's better to just wait a little bit longer because you all, and of course the people in our community are too important to me, too important to us to take any chances on your health. So I will keep you updated as new developments come in. Hopefully we'll have more news for you in a bit, but for right now, we are gonna continue our online format, which of course is every Sunday, <laughs> just like a regular church would be. And as soon as we are able to safely reopen in-person services, we will do that because I cannot wait. <laughs> Don't forget to join the conversation in the Facebook comments below or the Slack channel if you are a member of our Slack group because we, of course, will be there to interact with you. Now, today, for our faith discussion, for our little study, we have a passage from Acts about the start of the Christian movement. So it's like a little bit of history, kind of exciting. Um, and the passage is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. So I'm going to read it. It's a short little passage, and then we are going to discuss. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying goodwill of people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Delightful. It's such a fun little narrative. This is a short little story about the how the early Christian movement came to be and like what they looked like. So in chapter 1 of Acts, we have 120-ish believers in Jesus in chapter two, we're up to like 3000, which is like a small college campus. Like that's a, that's a fairly good size. And here in chapter two, at the end of chapter two, we are getting a little glimpse of what this little newborn, tiny community looks like and how they're actually living. It seems like for them, the most important things are discipleship and living in community with each other. Now, discipleship is a church word and it literally means to be a learner. So if you ever hear discipleship tossed around, it means learning. You know, that should be the word that it triggers in your head. The way that faith communities use it is a little bit more specific because 
we specifically mean that a person is a learner of faith. So we want to know about faith, we want to know about God, etc. So we're very specific when we use that term. And when we talk about discipleship, like in church, it generally carries like an academic kind of connotation. So people are learning more, they're reading more, they're seeking to understand the Bible, maybe they're taking classes, they're pursuing some kind of academic knowledge about faith, which is wonderful. I'm even in like most churches, I would say the discipleship program <laughs> is based on classes. So like if you're, if you're from an old fashioned church, maybe you had discipleship classes like Disciples 101. If you're from a cool hip church, they probably called it something fancy like growth track. But everybody, everybody has these discipleship classes that they offer. And that's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. But <laughs> what we have to understand as people of faith is that true knowledge about faith, right, is when wisdom and learning collide, when they intersect. All of the knowledge in the world is not useful <laughs> if you can't apply it to situations in your life. All of the knowledge about faith, all of the memorized Bible verses, all of the memorized prayers and creeds, all of that is not helpful <laughs> if you spend all your time beating people up with what you know, if you spend your time talking down to people, shaming people, if you have missed the point of what faith actually is to begin with. So if you're saying, I am a disciple of Jesus, that means you want to learn and you are learning, but you are learning more than just facts. You are learning more than just things about God. So you are learning love. You're learning the generous ways of God. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, you are learning how prayer should be involved in your life. You are learning how to live in community with people who may not look like you or act like you or talk like you. Um, discipleship is this whole process where you get transformed because you're participating in learning. And sometimes that transformation is like just as simple as knowing when to speak and when to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> like that is part of discipleship. Not like I could have everything I know up here does not mean I need to let it come out of my mouth usually. So discipleship is about how do we take what we know about God and what we're learning and what we're experiencing and put that into practice in real life. So that's what I want you to think of when, I th when you think of discipleship. So we are going to go through these verses like kind of bit by bit this morning and see how this little tiny Christian community was functioning. And then is there anything that we can take from that? So first of all, notice that the, the disciples and this little community did not just devote themselves to learning. They weren't just spending hours studying the Bible and then going home. They were devoted to learning and to fellowship, which is a church word for just being together. <laughs> so learning and fellowship and eating together and prayer. These are the four pillars of their community. Learning without community can be incredibly dangerous. <laughs> and maybe you think I'm exaggerating this, but historically there have been some incredibly crazy theological ideas that have popped up from people who have just been doing theology by themselves without having inter interaction with someone else. So learning happens in community with each other. We shouldn't be going off by ourselves 24 seven to never have interaction or discussion on faith because we can get an idea in our head and then let's say two years later, that's just ingrained in our being. Like, yes, this is the truth. This is the way to go. And then we talk to someone else and they have a completely different perspective. Whereas we could have known that all along. So 
there's been some crazy ideas <laughs> from people doing theology by themselves and also just some incredibly harmful ideas about the Bible and about faith that have been created through people doing theology or doing um, studying the Bible with people who only look like them or just by themselves entirely. So this little community emphasized doing all of this in community. So they were learning, but they were learning together. So these pillars that they have, the learning, the being together, the eating together, and the prayer, these are what are important. And just a note about eating together, because we can skip that. We're like, oh, yep, they had breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. That sounds delightful. Well, actually, this is crucial, and it comes up in the New Testament over <laughs> and over again so often, because you have to remember that there's different monetary classes of people represented in this group. So if you were a wealthy Jew, you certainly would have never eaten with your servants, right? Like that was something that you just didn't do. So for everybody to be eating together in the same place and no one to be getting any kind of preferential treatment, you don't get any preferential treatment because of your status or how much money you have or your civic position, none of that. Everybody eats together and everybody sits together and does life together. Because when you share meals like that, you actually build up relationships and you actually start to care about people. And this is actually such an important issue that comes up so many times because after the Jews finally figure out how they can eat together without having any special statuses <laughs> and someone being like, I'm at the head of the table. So all of that is done away with. They're just eating together like family. And then they have to figure out how to incorporate Gentiles into their eating together which they would have never done. The Jews would not have eaten with Gentiles. That was the big no-no. Um, and the Gentiles would be like, why would I want to eat with the Jews? They're a bunch of weirdos. They don't, they eat all these weird foods. They shun, they shame me for eating what I'm eating. It causes big problems. And so it comes up over and over again in the New Testament that if you want to have a faith community, everybody has to be together. <laughs> everybody has to eat together, no matter where you came from, no matter what your status is, no matter what your background is, your ethnicity, your faith tradition, it doesn't matter. Everybody gets to sit at the table equally and everybody has to share and nobody gets to shame each other. So this is a crucial part of what this little church is doing is they're eating together and they're trying to work out how we can be brothers and sisters, how we can be a family of faith together without one person being better than another person. And also, Another thing to point out in this passage is that we should take a look at the economic functioning of this little community. So verse 44 says that they had all things in common and they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any person has a need. Now, that little tiny hopeful narrative <laughs> sounds like a utopia because it is, honestly. Um, it's been held up throughout history as an example of what the church should look like by various groups and various sects of the church. Um, what, I mean, what we're describing is essentially like a little commune. At least that's how it's been interpreted by religious sects and some groups throughout history. And everyone has everything in common, except for their houses. It does seem here that they lived separately still. So the difference between a typical, like what we would think of a commune or communal living is everyone kind of lives together in the same spot. But these people seem to be still spread out, but they're sharing everything else. So that brings up this question. If this is what the early church looked like, to what extent should we attempt to imitate them? Or to what extent 
what degree should we work this into our church practice? Because some religious groups have attempted to copy this model, uh, living community, living community, <laughs> living communally, and those with resources selling their properties, selling their stacks, selling whatever, and donating the money to the general fund, and then everybody lives together. And unfortunately, this communal way of living doesn't usually work. Uh, it the only place I can think of that it has actually worked is like monasteries. <laughs> and those are very difficult to get into. You can't just go to a monastery. You have to like make a serious commitment. And generally you spend a certain amount of time there and then you make a serious commitment for the rest of your life. So like you may, it may be three years before you can commit to stay there for the rest of the time or even longer. There may have been a few communal living spaces, a few communes, as we say, that have worked over the years but I would say the majority of them have failed spectacularly. <laughs> and why, right? Why, why, why are they failing? Why can't we seem to get it together? It worked for the early Christians. Why didn't it work for us? Well, uh, usually because humans are involved. <laughs> so when humans are involved, eventually something's gonna go wrong, right? Like someone will want power, someone will want control, someone will steal or lie or hide things from the group and on and on and on. Someone will do something and most Communities can't survive things like that when everybody is on top of each other. But still, just because it hasn't been able to be done well consistently, does that mean that we shouldn't hold it up as an ideal? Like, is this still something that we should work towards? These people who live and have everything in common and like, that's a, that's a completely different way of thinking. So the answer I think is complicated. I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, the idealist in me wants to say, of course, that's the best way to live, right? Like sharing and caring for each other with your whole lives. Like oh, what a beautiful, wonderful thing to commit to. And then of course I have like the cynic over here who is like, that would never in a million years work. Historically, it has been proven not to work. You should just scrap the whole idea. But actually, I don't think either of those answers are appropriate. We actually need to follow this through scripture and, and see what happens to this community. So we actually, we just read like verse 44. They're just having a wonderful time, living together, eating together, sharing everything. But what happens to the community after that? Because this is what it looks like at the very beginning. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see somewhat of a different picture. So Paul, who's the writer of two thirds of the New Testament, is later, at a later date, taking up offerings to support the church in Jerusalem because this little church seems to be struggling and is in need of some financial assistance. And Paul seems to have a different perspective than this little community when it started on how the community should be run financially. So in Jerusalem here, everybody has everything in common and everybody sells everything they have and then they just live and learn and study. But in Paul's directions to Christian communities, everything is not held in common, but everyone is still expected to use their resources to care for each other. But Paul is not a, Paul's not opposed to people like selling a piece of property and donating the money, but Paul is very much intent on people still having a way to provide. So they still need to work. They still need to hold down jobs. They still need to plan for future. They need to have like, it's fine to sell property and give the money to the church, but if you sell everything that you have, 
and then you have no way of creating any kind of further revenue stream, that's eventually going to put the church back in the same position that it was at the beginning, which is no money (laughs) and no stability. And this is what the little church in Jerusalem found out eventually. So we have to wonder, why were they selling all their possessions to begin with? So why was everybody selling everything and then just living together and studying? Because they were expecting Jesus to come back. They were expecting Jesus to come back right then, like any moment. Jesus said, I'll be back, see ya, disappeared into the clouds. And they're like, well, he's, he must mean like a few months tops, maybe like a year or two. Like essentially, it's like, what's the point of investing in a 401k when Jesus is coming back? He's going to be here like tomorrow. That's a funny example, but like you get my point, right? So Jesus didn't come back right away. (laughs) Obviously, Uh, we're 2000 years later. Jesus has not come back. So because of the way that they approached this initially, eventually the little church in Jerusalem began struggling because they ran out of money because nobody had any more resources that could give them any kind of financial stability. And I think that we can see this throughout church history, and I'll give you a specific example. Um, The Pentecostal movement, which roughly began around 1900. Um, And the Pentecostal movement, that's like a tradition that I'm part of. So if you know anything about church history, that might involve speaking in tongues or prophesying or like all the (laughs) crazy extra things that go on, like not liturgical, usually very loud, signs in the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Holy Spirit is very prominent. So when that movement started, there was quite a few people who got rid of all their possessions because they felt like this this new experience they were having, this baptism in the Holy Spirit with all these evidences, meant that Jesus was coming back any second. So they just got rid of everything. They were like, we don't need to go to school. (laughs) We don't need to go to work. We just need to go out to the mission field and never mind that we don't know anything about the countries that we're going to. We're just going to go and we're going to save as many people as possible because Jesus is coming back and he'll be here any moment. Obviously, (laughs) we are still here. We're still talking. And eventually some of these people had to come home and they didn't have jobs. They didn't have homes. They didn't have any means to put food on the table because they had so invested in this. Now, that's an example from literally 100 years ago. So this is still happening. In the little tiny church in Jerusalem, this is what they were going through. They're like, Jesus is going to come back. So who needs all this stuff? And there is definitely something to be said for leaving things in your life to follow Jesus. But they left everything. They were like, we don't need this property. We don't need our businesses. We're just going to study and learn together. And then we're not going to have any source of income because by the time we run out of money, Jesus will be here. And I think Paul later in the New Testament is trying to give us a more nuanced approach. So people with resources, even people with no resources, if you have anything, right, you are a steward of that resource. Like that God has entrusted you with what you have so that you can help other people. So if I have extra of anything, or sometimes if I even have just enough of anything to share with someone else, God expects that of us. And the more resources you have, the greater responsibility you have because God has entrusted you with this thing so that you can live and so that other people can be blessed as well. However, (laughs) the community and the people in it, I think in Paul's perspective, they need to live in this already, not yet, (laughs) paradigm. So already we are living 
as redeemed people. We are living because we believe that God is coming to put everything to right, that this great decisive event in the middle of history was Jesus, who died on the cross, was risen, uh, was crucified, was buried, rose from the dead, as they say in the Apostles' Creed, which we adhere to. So all of this stuff, like we believe that, that that was the major life-changing event in history. And so we get to live as though we are redeemed already. We're already living in God's new creation. But also, (laughs) not yet. So we still, obviously, are still here. So it's not yet happened. So it's still important to work. It's still important to um, be good stewards of the resources that we've been entrusted to because we need to put food on our tables and we need to make sure that there's food in God's house through tithes and offerings, which just as an aside, (laughs) because we try to use like normal words here, tithes and offerings are like churchy words for saying donations. (laughs) That's really all it is. And I think that's Paul's perspective in the New Testament because he sees that he wants to raise money for the church in Jerusalem because they are really struggling. They're not financially stable. They thought that they wouldn't get this far. They thought that they wouldn't need to retire. They thought that their children wouldn't need to do all of these things because Jesus was coming back. And Paul is saying, being a good steward means we live so generously because we know that God's new kingdom has already come. And we also plan and work vigorously because we know that we still exist in this kingdom of the world where things cost money. (laughs) So I think it's interesting. And I also think it's beautiful that we see growth like this in the New Testament because I have heard this little passage in Acts applied to like churches should do this. Churches should look like this. And then we have this different perspective from Paul later in the New Testament. And I think it's wonderful to see the growth Because in the beginning, the church tried something and it was wonderful for a while and then it didn't work anymore. And then the church tried something else and it was wonderful and then it didn't work. And you can see this progression of learning, progression of people going, oh, okay, so how does my faith adapt to this situation? How does my life fit into this belief that Jesus is the Messiah when I I thought that that meant he was coming back instantly, but I guess that means something else. So how are we supposed to live in the meantime? Which is the whole question of faith, right? How are we to live in the meantime? And I just think that's so interesting. (laughs) Maybe I feel like I got a little rambly there in the middle. So hopefully you were able to follow my train of thought through this description of what the church in Acts was doing. Um, But I do think it's important. And one of the other things that's important to know in this little passage is that they devoted themselves to learning, which we talked about, eating together, we talked about. Um, and prayer, prayer is the last one, right? So we have learning, being together, eating together and prayer. Now, prayer is, I imagine that this occurred in that community, just the same way it occurs in all of our faith communities, right? So we have our individual, we have the ability to pray by ourselves. So there's some kind of individual prayer level. (laughs) And then there's also a communal prayer level where we pray for each other, we pray with each other, we pray through each other, etc. So there's both, like if I'm only ever praying by myself, I'm not experiencing all that prayer has to offer. But if I'm only ever praying with other people, then I'm not experiencing all that prayer has to offer either. Prayer is like the glue that holds faith communities together and propels them forward. 
it's so easy, <laughs> and I'm going to try to avoid this. It's so easy to spend tons of time talking about prayer and then no time actually praying. <laughs> I've definitely been guilty of this in my life. So we are going to do something special, a little bit interactive this morning, and that is we are going to actually pray for each other. Now, if you're watching this and you have another person or persons with you, you are actually going to pray for the person that's next to you. So let me give you some instructions <laughs> before you do this. If you're not used to praying for another person or with another person there or out loud, this might feel really awkward to you or strange. I don't want you to worry. You, your prayer does not have to sound a certain way. It doesn't have to use fancy church words. It doesn't have to be a certain length. Prayer is literally conversation with God. Think about how you talk to your loved ones and your friends. You don't like light a candle and like put a mat down and like turn around three times before you talk to your friends and your family, right? You just talk to them. And that's all you have to do in prayer. That's what Jesus has given us the access to do, the ability to talk directly to God with no barriers. So however feels comfortable to you, you can do it. You just talk. You can keep your eyes open. You can close them. You can stare at the ceiling. It doesn't matter. Whatever you feel comfortable doing. And then whenever you are done praying, what you're going to do is actually give that other person a chance to pray for you. And if you're by yourself, if you're watching this and there's not another person next to you, um, what you, this still applies to you. So what I want you to do is pick someone that you love, someone that's dear to you, a friend, a family member, maybe even someone that you know has been having a difficult time recently, and you're going to pray for that person. The only additional instruction I'm going to give you is that once you're done praying, pick up your phone and send them a text. Send that person a text and let them know that you were thinking about them and praying for them. And so this morning, we're going to pray together and for each other because it's something that brings us closer together, connects us with the people we love, connects us with our faith and prayer. Prayer is wonderful. So this is what I'm going to invite you to do. I'm going to invite you to pause the video when I say, and don't worry, we'll be here when you get back. And you're going to pray for the person that's next to you or pray for the person that's in your mind. And then when you're ready, you're going to unpause the video and then we will close together. Okay. So I'm going to invite you right now to go ahead and just pause this video and then we'll come back together in a few moments when you're ready. Okay. I hope that was meaningful to you. Um, I am going to pray for all of you right now as well because I have the microphone so I can, <laughs> and I think prayer is really valuable. So I'm just going to pray for you, if you'll allow me. Holy God, I lift up our precious community of faith to you. I pray for them because they are valuable to me, just as I know that they are valuable to you. And I ask specifically for peace in the middle of uncertainty, for strength in the middle of illness, for provision in the middle of economic issues, for hope in the middle of a bleak outlook that you would take our worries and our fears and our sleepless nights and empower us to keep walking through them. Help us to praise you and share what we have with others. And as we are faithful to you and we are faithful to each other, entrust us with people who don't yet have faith but need to belong. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The power of community is one of God's greatest gifts to us. Because together, we get to learn what love looks like.
what it feels like, what makes it possible. We make mistakes together. We try again. We support each other in joy and grief. We create spaces of belonging in the world that can be so isolating. We are the hope that we want to see in the world. And so I'm going to send you out <laughs> with a benediction, which we always like to do at the end, which is like a blessing and a prayer for you as you go through the week. Um, and then I will set you free. <laughs> so this is the benediction for this week. Through the risen Christ, let us imagine the world renewed. Our hearts are open to a future born from love. No injustice, no inequality, and no insecurity is permanent. Everything can change. We know with change there may be challenges and losses, but we can shoulder them together. In the company of the Spirit of God, impossibilities are made possible. When love resists evil, hard hearts will melt. Yes, even ours. Holy God, who never abandons us to our fears, lead us in hope to deliverance together. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your Sunday morning with us. And thank you for all of everything that you have done throughout this crazy quarantine time of being a part to stay connected with us. I personally appreciate you. And it's just been an honor and privilege to be your pastor, <laughs> to be your pastor. And, and most importantly, to just have a relationship with you. So please stay safe. Please stay healthy and take care of each other. And we will hopefully be together in person very soon. Bye friends.